Hello and welcome to What Memory, the podcast for survivors of stroke and brain injury. I'm Stephen Masters and I'm here with Josh Reed. We've both had strokes. We want to share our experiences, find out how other people live with brain injury and investigate what's new in brain injury research. This is episode 22, Life Support. In May 2018, Josh underwent a double lung transplant, an operation that requires a donor and one that carries only a 50-50 chance of survival. His family and friends anxiously awaited the outcome. In this episode, I talk with his mother, Rosanna. When did you realise that things hadn't quite gone according to plan, that things were gone on? Well, when he, when he had his operation, um, what I hadn't realised or appreciated is they put in one lung at a time. Oh, um, nice. I had this vision that they did them somehow as a pair. So they said to me, they contacted my husband and I, um, and they said, this was in the middle of the night, and said, the first lung has gone in, very successful, very pleased. Okay, this sounds good. Updating you, so we were starting to feel very excited. Yes. Um, and then a few hours later, um, we had a call saying, we, yeah, where we think you should come in. There's been a, a little bit of a hitch um, with the second lung. We just, it was all going very well, but, you know, I think it's a good idea to come in. Um, and yes, we drove to Papworth at record speed. Right. Um, with a, well, I felt I had well, I had a, that sinking feeling. And when we got there, we you know we found Josh. They said, you know, this is very normal. We've kept him, you know, sort of in a sort of coma state, if you like. Right. Which would be natural because it would be a shock to wake up and start breathing when you haven't been able to use yes lungs for so long um but when i looked at him i was just saying to my husband there's something the matter he doesn't look right right and i my first feeling was he's had a stroke oh right you just kind of immediately I thought think, i think he's, yeah wow and i said because they asked me a very strange question which was, um, does, is Josh left-handed? And I said, no, he's right-handed. Because he was obviously showing movement in his left-hand side. Right. And I said to my husband, now you see my grandmother had a stroke and my mother had a stroke. Right. And I looked and I just said, I honestly think he's had a stroke. But so you, you know could what? see the signs. Yes. And he it wasn't was moving his right side. Presumably. Yeah. Okay, so it was a bit of a giveaway, yes. Yes. But had they, they had they realised that then? There was no mention of it, but I, there was an awful lot I discovered later on about him sort of almost bleeding out on the, Whoa. the table. I mean, it was a miracle that he even got to... Got off the table, kind of, so to speak. Yeah. Oh, they my. Had but they, had, they didn't tell you that at the time, that kind of... Yeah. No, they said we've sent, um, we've done a brain scan because he was in the old Papworth. Right, yes. 
and so they'd sent a brain scan to Adam Brooks and they were waiting for the results of that. Right. Um, so yes, I was convinced that things had, you know, had gone really badly wrong and right. that he probably wouldn't come out of it or if he did, he wouldn't come out of it in the way that he would want. Yes, right. So your feelings at that moment must have been, this is all over now, is it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, when we, when we went forward with it, well, you know, when we had all the appointments coming up to the point of him deciding to have a transplant, it was very much the feeling of he'll either get through or he won't. Right. So when we said goodbye is when he went in for surgery. I thought, well, I'll either see him again or I won't. Okay, that must have been a tough moment because... It was. It was. Yes, I can it was, um, it was. It's all in their hands now. But as Josh said, I'm not going to make it unless I have a go because my lungs are packing up. So yes. I have no choice. Um, this is a chance and I need to take it. Right. Because he'd been patient waiting for me to get come to terms with that. Yes. Um, yes, because obviously you've got a lot to come to terms with in a situation yeah. like that. Yeah. Right, but also he'd made it very clear um, his wishes um, if things didn't work out. So he'd had to sort of write a will with me and he'd written down everything that he wanted and didn't want. <laughs> right, <laughs> including, okay. including people he didn't want to go to his funeral because they hadn't bothered with him of late. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A list of people he didn't want at the funeral. Okay, well, I can he see. Said, well, yeah, he said it's up to you ultimately, Mum. But really, it's my funeral. <laughs> That's and very actually, Josh, you know, because <laughs> yes, I've known him quite very, a long time now. Very, that is. <laughs> he was very pragmatic. Yes, he is actually a very <laughs> yes. Wow. Okay, yeah. so he decides he's going to do the operation. Yeah. You kind of come to terms with the fact that it might be fifty-fifty, and yes. this. At this, this particular point, it's now gone on the wrong wrong fifty. Yes, it's kind yeah. of lights out time. Oh, yes. but he was still actually technically alive, wasn't he? I mean, he wasn't. He was so alive. he was in a stroke. You thought, and they finally say he's had a stroke. When, when did they tell you that? Then confirm um, it. You know, it was. I think once they it was it was probably a matter of hours. Right. But once they had the brain scan. They said, you know, we've looked at the brain scan and we think it's quite catastrophic. And basically then they decided that it was a question of moving us into a side room, which was always bad news. Yes. Um, and then allowing us to spend a, a last night with him. Oh, we did. So we. I'm just kind of going to go back to the quite catastrophic, which yes. is like nearly catastrophic. I mean, it's, it's yeah. quite casual. I mean, the catastrophic bit, but the yeah. quite. I mean, it's catastrophic or it isn't. Know, it's not. It's not looking positive. Wow. For him to have a quality of life. Right. Um, so at that point, they arranged. So we spent the night with him. So basically, just they got a bed and we lay in bed my husband and I, next to Josh, and I just held his hand. Right. 
and it was um, in between that I also had to see um, the team because Josh had wanted he was on the donor list right and he he'd made it clear my lungs are rubbish but there are lots of other good bits you know um, <laughs> ever practical skin heart you know uh, you name it he donated everything um, right but they got into that bit pretty quickly then they have to oh I see but that because must be quite unnerving when you hardly come yeah. to terms with the fact you've lost him and they're already talking about taking, know, taking was, him apart. That would I freak me out, frankly. I was remarkably calm about that because all I could hear in my head was Josh saying, we've talked about this, this is what I want. Right. It doesn't work out. Someone has tried to give me a chance with their lungs. So if okay, I can give it, yeah. someone some, and that's what kept me going, really. Right. And so, I, and then you go into um, just a very sort of this practical state, and also the team who come to see you. I mean, what an impossible job! I know, horrible. Must be horrible. Seeing, but they were absolutely amazing. Right. They made me feel as good as you can feel in the worst circumstances. Yes. And these are the um, worst circumstances. My God. Yeah. You know, they wanted to know about Josh. He wasn't just body parts. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, and I, you know, I just take my hat off to their training and their sensitivity but also the fact that they have to be so practical because it's time critical. Yeah, absolutely. I can understand um, that. Just as it was for Josh. And I thought someone else went through this conversation. To get Josh. to Josh having an operation, some other person had yes. to have that the conversation. Had God, to yes. yes. Okay, I can understand um, that, yes. So I thought, no, this is, this is what... You know, this is what Josh wants, and what he doesn't want to do is to for these this to be wasted. And we talked about it for a long time, right? And I think you go into sort of autopilot. Yes. And you go, I have to do this, and I will deal with the fallout afterwards. But at some stage, at some stage in all of this. Mm. The situation changed, and I mean, how did that happen then? If they were, were they going to just going to shut him down and take him away, and that was it? No, they said what we do is we we get all the forms done, so the paperwork, the admin, and then they sort of step away to give, so I could have that time with him, and that night that Jeff and I spent with him. And then the next day, uh, we were seen again, well, by which time we had the sort of whole family and some friends there, because they asked right. if, they said, we suggest that you bring in his, anyone who would like to say their goodbyes. Right. We had, um, we had family there, we had some of Josh's closest friends, colleagues of mine, um, cousins, um, my younger brother lived in France, so, you know, he wanted a chance to come over. Wow, okay. Um, 
but they then had us heard what once we were getting our head round the whole idea then we were asked um to well it was just family then uh to go in a you know the waiting room and then um some other medical staff came to see us and they said we've had another look at the scan or they'd repeated the scan and they've they said we have seen some brain activity which we didn't see before so he was still alive he's on what on a life support system a, yes yeah and was the intention then that they would turn the life support system off yes So, Never in the nick of time, in the nick of time, somebody Edinburgh said, Hang on a minute, there's something going on. Whoa, hold on a second. So, we're going to turn the life support system yes. off. Oh, no, hang on a minute. I mean, that's a pretty big hang on a minute. It's the biggest well, hang on a minute of all time, isn't it? Yes. So, what was your feeling when they said, Hang on a minute, let's not do this? Well, just had questions which is how how might he be how you know can you tell what yeah if he's going to be like josh or if he's going to have what sort of quality of life right um they don't know they said but there's enough activity um and now the transplant the um team who were, you know, waiting for bits of Josh. All, all the bits of Josh. Yes, they all said, we're stepping away now. We're stepping away. Right. Because there is a chance that he may get through this. So we've been advised, you know, that there is enough activity that, um, that all the paperwork had been done if anything changed. Okay. Well, it's so good. It good the say, paperwork's all in place beforehand, know, isn't I it? I know they do like their paperwork. Well, <laughs> yes, well done them. Um, so I just, I just kind of come to terms with all this, like you, you have. But um, so now he's lying on the bed. Yeah. He's in a coma. He's had a stroke. They're not going to turn the life support system off. But you don't actually know. He's not woken up yet. He's not talking or anything like that. He's just there. Yeah. So what was the what was the idea then that they were just going to leave him? The there? idea was well observing him, making sure he got fluids into him. Because the big issue was he was in a hospital where they could deal with a transplant, but not a stroke. Right. So the. Um, I, I asked at some point if he could be transferred to Addenbrooks to the stroke unit. And they said the issue is there's no one there who can deal with his transport plant medication and keeping his lungs. So it's you a know. bit either or then. Either you have the we lungs were, or yeah. you have the stroke. Yeah. But you can't have both. You can't have both. Um, so basically I just thought we sort of did a bit of a DIY job. So I did all the speaking. Being a linguist, I could do all the talking and the stimulation. No, my husband did as well. But my husband did a lot of massage. We basically were stimulating him. Right, right. Um, until we got a reaction, which we did. Oh, and wow. The first, bit, 
the first reaction was him moving his physically moving his leg actually quite violently oh right okay um, and basically every we just were there <laughs> watching for any signs of Josh yes. coming out of his shell, which we eventually saw more and more of. But, but, this, but this took, was, yeah, he couldn't speak, but is, it, is this over quite a long period of time then? Yeah, this was several weeks. So Josh um, is lying there in a coma for several weeks and you're just gradually trying to bring him to some kind yeah. of consciousness. Were you aware that there was a Josh still in there or was he just a kind of body that no, might... I, I, because he he was getting very agitated and it was almost, I felt it must be, he knows there's something going on and we had a particular night. I was sort of pretty much living at the hospital and they kept saying, you need to go home for the night. You'll just be exhausted. You'll be no good to him. And yeah. I said, well, I don't trust anyone to look after him. <laughs> and I don't like people talking about him um, because I think he can hear everything that's going on. Oh, right. So you were aware that his yeah. hearing might be okay and yeah. that he was he could he was aware of his surroundings but just I, unable to just, move. You just feel feel that and I always think they always say the hearing is the last thing to go. So yes. I just thought, well, if he's lying there trapped, he's gonna be really angry. Yes. If he hears people, you know, saying it's looking grim, you know, <laughs> you needed positivity. You need positivity and optimism, yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. So um there was one particular night where they had persuaded me to go home and then I got a phone call saying, you need to come in, we can't control him. And Josh had got very violent. And that, that what? He'd, he was sort of flailing about, but I thought, well, that's good. That means he's fighting Absolutely, back. yes. Um, and he used some very sort of choice language when I got in, but I literally had to pin him to the bed because he was trying to pull out tubes. And, oh, my God. Um, so I'm afraid he used a word which I would never approve of in this house. About, <laughs> we call it the night of the 20 C's. And then one of the nurses saying, well, you can't speak to a mother like that. And I said, he can speak however he likes. Absolutely. Yes. But he kept, the other thing that really upset me was he kept saying, Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett? Well, as in the writer? Josh loved Terry Pratchett, but he also, I, and I was saying, Josh, it's not your time yet. <laughs> I said, no, if you can shout at your mother like this and use this terrible language, then you're not ready to go. Because I was saying to them, this isn't Josh. Josh would never speak to me like this. No. This is Josh who's frustrated, who can't speak. And he's kind of saying he's had enough. So, yes, it was Terry Pratchett, the writer, as Stephen correctly suggested. Um, so the reason in this context that he is an important figure is because of his work around assisted suicide and his 
sort of struggle to make it legal in the UK. And before my stroke and my lung transplant, mum and I had a conversation about it and I said that I did not want to become a vegetable and if given the choice that she would allow me to pass away instead of living the rest of my days as a vegetable. But then I just felt actually after that there was something to really work with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a good place to start, really, I think. Yes. yes. Just to blow Tri your Triple swearing and, yes, well, <laughs> at, least, yeah, at least they're alive and kicking. Well, literally. Yeah, in, in exactly, he was literally kicking. I was on the bed, pinning him down, stopping him from pulling the tubes out. And then the nurse was saying, well, you know, we can't really do that. And I said, yes, but I can, which is precisely why I don't want to leave the hospital. Well, yes. I mean, how, so, else, were, how else were they going to prevent him harming himself? Well, I'll tell you how, and that was topping up his morphine. Oh, so they just blitz him out on, on morphine. I, I said, you're just keeping him slightly drugged. Yes. Which I didn't like. I said, I'd rather deal with him and fight with him Yes. than have him just, I said, that is not going to be stimulating. No. It's just going to make him just sleep, and I don't want that. No, the chemical kosh, they call it, isn't it? Yeah. You just yeah. pump them full of morphine until they subdue themselves. But, of I mean, course, that doesn't I, I, help Josh get no. out of the coma no. because no. you're foggy enough That's, as it is. Exactly. He finally comes out of it, and then, what, he starts talking, or...? Um, when did he start? He started saying words, and very odd things. I think the first thing was, um, it was very, very hot. That summer, it was incredibly hot, and we'd been moved into a different ward by then, so he wasn't in intensive care. It was a horrible little room, because obviously old Papworth, they were busy trying to get ready to move. Yes. They were in a very, very hot room. We got Josh sitting in a chair. I mean, he looked miserable <laughs> because obviously he was um, limited as to what he could do. Absolutely. Vision was very impaired. Um, but he, we had a fan on and the fan was clearly driving him mad. It was the sound of the fan. Yes. Which became, I think he called it a leopard the leopard and then he'd get cross because he knew he was saying something which he hadn't anticipated it's funny how words get confused but also the number of animals that get into the situation with stroke yes yeah, i used was, to think things were zebras yeah and i one. just said the leopard the leopard and then <laughs> he was like oh and he was so cross so cross and then we worked out it was the fan i said is it oh the Fan, it's annoying you. And he was like, oh. <laughs> but that, but that. that is a call and response, isn't it? I mean, yes. you said something and he's replied. Yes, and he was so relieved. So relieved. And you must have been relieved that there was a yeah. now a connection, that he wasn't kind of a, yes. well, a bodied person but not connecting yeah. with anything. There was a connection there. 
even if it was leopard and fanned, it was... Exactly. He thinks it might have been the purring of it, the constant purring, but anyway. And at some stage, they must have said, he can go home now. And when, what, how did that occur? Um, that occurred because with the complications with his cystic fibrosis, we had found that the nurses, the transplant nurses, weren't coping with the cystic fibrosis side of things. Right. Which seemed extraordinary, but anyway. Yes. So the, fortunately, his wonderful consultant for the transplant, Jazz Palmer, he agreed that the CF nurses could come in and take some more control. Right. Yes. But in the end, I just said, I, I need him home. Yes. I can do... I can... I can cope cope with this at home. Yes. And actually, he needs to be home. It was really scary. I bet. I mean, wow. Yes. But so did, did he have a whole hospital bed and everything like that? Oh, good. Obviously, he wasn't walking. No, or... no he didn't. I don't was know he talking he even properly? He was, he was talking. Um, he was very frail. He wasn't walking very far. Wow. But the joy of being at home with his pets. Right. Having Frankie gave him huge comfort. We adapted the house as far as we could with, you know, the help the, they arranged for... Um, uh, that We had a team coming round, physio, and some were very good. They came, we had a lady who used to come round to shower him because that was a battle. Yes. Um, but gradually we could dispense with them when we felt actually, even they said, you seem to be doing such a grand job, you and your husband, and pushing him even more than we could. Right. So we thought, yes, you know, we... We seem to be coping okay. But is this a? This sounds like it's a full time job, looking after yes. him. Yes, this sounds like a, an entire yes army of people trying to yeah. cope with all this. But you've got him in your own home, and yeah. you're taking basically the brunt of all of this, aren't you? Yes, and we did have. Yeah, we. I mean, there was help, but a lot of it, I felt, was, I mean, when, when they say someone can come in when you're at work and they can get him lunch, the fact that they weren't allowed to make the lunch. Right. I mean, oh, well, they, they could maybe butter a sandwich, but nothing could be cooked because... They don't do and that. I ended up dismissing them. Nice, <laughs> <laughs> but not at least you're seen, you know. But he was very yeah. stubborn. Yes. Yes. And he said they're worse than me, and I've had a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very much <laughs> like Josh, actually. Yes. So, I know. But but did you cope with him? Do you think? Right, no. right. Um, did I cope? Uh, in your own I mind, know. I mean, you were... In my own mind, not really. No. I, I was, it, was a, it was a struggle, but I still knew it was much better that he was there with us. Yes. Than languishing somewhere. There was a thought of a, a, an interim place. There was a place in St. Neots where 
he could have gone as a stepping stone. Right. But again, the problem was he had complex needs with his cystic fibrosis and his CF-related diabetes, and they weren't just coping with the stroke. They were coping with all the other medication Yes. for his transplant, which I could do with my eyes shut. Right. So in um, a way, you've become a sort of a semi-professional yeah. carer yourself, in, in, in a way. Well, I felt, you know, I could do it without having to think about it. And you knew him. So the reality of having Josh at home with you yes. um, and you basically looking after him and drawing him back out of this stroke state and the coma and everything else, you've kind of gone over that initial hill. But the big task... It's a long journey. It's a long journey in itself, but now you've got an even longer journey because the time it's going to take for him to become Josh again, did you feel that he was... You got Josh back at that time or was he... No, he was kind of a yeah, different, was, a different person. Yeah, he was very angry, moody. Right. Understandably. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for you know, any anyone to have gone through all of that and come out. With another impairment, and that, yes, repairing one thing and then not being. I think the hardest things actually, the hardest things for him not being able to read, yes, and see properly. Yes, I didn't, I didn't read for a year, right? right. I didn't pick up a book apart from schoolwork. I, I felt so guilty, I couldn't read, right? So, hmm. That's an interesting, interesting term, guilty. Why did you feel guilty about it? Because Josh couldn't, so I couldn't bear to do something that he couldn't do. Okay, that's a wonderful thought. Yes. So he's 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 actually not himself yet. Then he's this angry person who's obviously very frustrated with his entire life. Is he? Yeah. He's, in fact, he's not he's probably the same Josh you knew from before at all. No, because he was always so happy-go-lucky. But the mountain you now had to climb to go to get back to a Josh that we could kind of, or you could understand, how long, how long did that take then? It took, so we got him back in the summer, in sort of, I suppose, July, and it took till... We started to get Josh back in the following year in February, half term. Wow, that is a very long time. And that was only because of his friends supporting him right. and me um, and persuading Josh to come and spend a night with me in right. the house. Oh, right. And that was the turning point when Josh seemed to be having a bit of a breakdown. Right. Feeling that yeah. no one would care about him. Yes. And that he didn't have anything to offer. And gradually him realising 
with our support and his friend's support that actually he could go an awful lot further. And, I, and at that point, I had arranged for him to have um, a personal trainer as a, as a present. Right. And that made a huge difference in his life. And it was it was a girl that, you know, we, we knew. And um, so I knew he'd feel safe and confident. Right. She wasn't one. But she supported him, not not only physically developing, yes. but mentally. Mentally. Sort mentally. of coaching him to become... Yeah, coaching him to be, to be the person she knew he was. Right, yes, yes. And also to value himself. So at that point... I can quite understand that because six months in, when I was coming out of the fog of my own stroke, I began to sort of psychologically assess kind of where I was. And I was, I, I had very similar thoughts, which was, well, you know, screw this for a game of soldiers. I'm, I'm not sure I want, want this for the rest of my life, but if, it, if this is the best it's going to get. And I could quite see that he went through a, a similar thing. I think everybody who has a stroke goes through that. I think the intervention at six six months is is the key intervention because that's when you can go downhill psychologically yeah. very quickly when you the kind of full weight of what's happened kind of suddenly dawns on you and uh, yeah but it's not it can't be very nice for immediate family like you to watch that and think no. oh we've got to intervene somehow as if to yeah. kind of stop this happening as well making sure we had enough people and different people popping in yes to give him that stimulation and not just you know random folk you know but <laughs> yes, people yes. who are really meaning you know meaningful in his life yes and i think that's where his school friends and university friends were so important yes because they could they could get him at that level yes. and yes. they could remind him of who he was before yes had yes get the memories back and the, memories. the good yeah. times and the and the potentially exactly. future good times as well yeah they were crucial not just to him but to me i'm very intrigued by how you feel you've come out of all this yourself because you've been through a gigantic trauma, as well as Josh. I mean, he probably, that close and personal stuff when he was basically in a coma, he never remember. well, no. from the comment, he doesn't get that bit of it, but you did. And then all yeah. of that year of trying to cope with them. Do you feel you come out of that better? <laughs> um, or do you feel you come out of it at all? Do you feel still that there's a way to go? I just, I, I do now feel that I have got Josh back. Right. Because we can do things together. And also we can, we, we always survive with this very dark sense of humour. Dark humour is always good. <laughs> and um, for a long time, I got very upset if, um, if Jeff, you know, his stepdad would use the humour that we've always used with Josh. I'd get I'd say, how could you do that? You know, <laughs> Jeff was waving a glass on Josh's right side because he knows Josh can't see it and it would really upset me. 
Whereas yes, yes. I've got beyond that now. Okay. Just like, Mum, just, yeah. And do you um, feel you, so, you've got yourself back? Yes, yes. So well, that's can, great news. That's great news. Yeah. yeah, we can. We do sort of, yeah, we've got the humour back and that just helps with everything. Absolutely. So how do you feel like five years on now? I think we're in a in a good place. I mean, I'd like just to be independent. Yes, right. You know, I think it's very sad to see all his friends, you know, in their jobs in London. I, and I do wonder what Josh would be doing. Yes. Had he not had the stroke, because his lungs have been so amazing. And he's so physically transformed yes since his pre-lung day in that he's very fit healthy we go to the gym together and i'm just amazed that i would never thought i'd be sitting on a spin bike next to josh <laughs> so you you're know, getting fitter as well this is good yeah, news but i you know when i don't want to go i always think well i, I i've got no excuse how dare i be so <laughs> lazy when josh is prepared to go with everything he has to put up with You've still got this idea of, of where Josh might have been at this age. Yeah. And it's, it's, but presumably that's kind of, he's here at all. I suppose you've got to kind of yeah. find. Yes, I, just, I don't dwell on it. But you I don't dwell it, on it, yeah. It definitely crosses my mind. I do feel that he's in the, the best place I could ever have hoped for him to be in. Thank you very much for that. That was amazing. And That's I didn't really, yes, yeah, so I wanted to find out what it was like on the other side, so to speak, of, yeah. of the equation, because so many people who have strokes have to have other people in their lives supporting them. And, uh, and that's... And I'd be fearful for anyone who doesn't. Yes, exactly. Those that don't... Really have that support and I do know a couple I've met them who didn't have the support and they're, they're in a terrible state and um, I've said to, to Josh quite a few times you know it takes at least two people to have a stroke you're going to have the person with the yeah. stroke and then a person who's going to care for them yeah. and I think that's completely unrecognized in this country and I think we're probably going to Absolutely. do more um, um, conversations like this with with carers because they seem to have as much of a roller coaster ride following in the process of recovery as the, as the people have had the stroke. Sometimes more so, I think. My thanks to Rosanna for sharing her extraordinary experiences of Josh's life-changing event. At the beginning of every podcast, we say we want to find out how other people live with brain injury. And now we realise that this statement also refers to those who care for them. Because it's very clear to us that a massive ripple effect emanates from a brain injury survivor throughout their whole family. We want to highlight the fact that every brain injury creates at least one carer who has to live with someone else's brain injury and that their own lives are also changed forever. If you're a carer and want to share your story, email us and want me to at hotmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-M-E-M-O-R-Y followed by the numeral 2 
at hotmail.com. And check us out on our Instagram at what underscore memory two. What Memory is our personal podcast. Any views expressed are purely our own or the personal views of our guests. We're not expressing the views of any organisation or business. A big thanks to our amazing sound producer and music composer and fellow brain injury survivor, Jamie Rutherford. Okay, we're done. The only thing we know for sure after brain injury is that the future is unknown and daunting, but it's only going to be brighter if we plan for it to be that way. Bye for now.